good morning and greetings to each one in Jesus' name. A Savior that we just sang about. And you said that your faith has found a resting place, and that's all you need. What are you going to do about it? Just sit there? Just accept it? Are you going to walk forward with it? I found it interesting that the second phrase there was not in device or creed. And we can have some play on words and think about different things. But how many people have made, put their faith in a device? And the answers it gives, the, the relationship it gives, instead of faith in a relationship with God. I don't know what your response internally was when you saw this board up here, if it was, oh, that again, or, or what. But turn with me, if you would, to Ezra. Ezra 4. Last time I, I preached, I looked at the book of Haggai and where it fits into the story of God's people and God working with his people. And I ended up with some verses out of Hebrews, chapter 12. I would, I would like to just refresh those in our memory as we move forward here. Hebrews 12, 28 says, Whereby we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. And I guess that's part of the... the the reason for the question that I ask, what's your response going to be to that song? Because it says that we may serve God acceptably. It calls for response. And we'll, we'll come back to that later. This timeline here, just as we had looked at the fall of Jerusalem... Those that went back in, in roughly 536 to rebuild at the decree of Cyrus. The temple rebuilding began in, in 520. And that is where that, that came about with the message of Haggai and also Zechariah. That called the people back. They, they were there for a number of years and had not made much progress. There was... There was Things they were running into, obstacles and, and confrontation. But Haggai came with the message and it was, get your priorities right. God will be with you. And then God said, and I want you to notice how I'm with you. Take notice that I'm noticing what you're doing. And lastly in, in that message was God's promise carried forward that ever-present ray of light pointing to the Messiah. And so, that was, that was the backdrop of, of Haggai, but if we go here and read, I just want to, some background in, in Ezra 4.21. This was a message from a king Part of the obstacles, it says, Give ye now a commandment to cause these men to cease that this city be not builded until another commandment shall be given from me. Take heed now that ye fail not to do this. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the kings? And now when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahim and Shimshai the scribe and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem to the Jews and made them cease by force and by power, by force and power. Then ceased the work of the house of God, which is Jerusalem. So it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. 
5.1, Then the prophets Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo prophesied unto the Jews that were in Jerusalem, Judah and Jerusalem, in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. So we had the message of Haggai. And I'd like to now read just the introduction, the first part of the first prophecy of Zechariah. Zechariah is a fairly long book with a lot of different prophecy, but I'd just like to, to give the, the part that applies in, in speaking to these people, especially at this point, in this juncture. I believe this actually became, came to the people in the midst of Haggai's. He had four different words from the Lord, and this one came in the middle somewhere. But in Zechariah chapter 1, reading the first six verses, it says, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, the prophet, saying, The Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. Therefore say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Be ye not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye now from your evil ways and from your evil doings. But they did not hear, nor hearken unto me, saith the Lord. Where, your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? And they returned and said, Like as the Lord of hosts thought to do unto us, According to our ways and according to our doings, so hath he dealt with us. It seems that the people heard Haggai's message and it stirred their hearts. And they made a response enough that God sent another word to encourage them and challenge them. And I see here both words of, of warning and encouragement. We can argue with God's word, but we can't change it. And here he's saying, the Lord is, is saying, you know, I, I sent messages out. I sent a word through prophets. They're gone. The people I prophesied to are gone. But what I said happened. There's a, a popular phrase I just saw it again the other day. It said, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. And I've heard someone ha said that, well, maybe that should be altered a little bit. God said it, that settles it, and I believe it. Because whether I believe it or not, it's settled. But we see here also a word of encouragement a reminder, a beautiful picture here where God says in verse 3, Turn unto me, and I will turn unto you. I'm waiting. And that, that echoes the, call, the, the message of Haggai. Turn. Set your priorities right. I'm waiting for you to be obedient to put me first. And I will turn to you and I will bless you. And I would just like to read a few verses from Psalm 145 that speak to this, the, the testimony of someone else. Psalm 145, 17 to 21. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. The Lord is nigh unto them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He also will hear their cry and will save them. The Lord preserveth all them that love him, but all the wicked will he destroy. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. So if we see 
in the, the life, the lives of these people that were prophesied to in Ezra. In Ezra 5, verse 1, it just says, Then the prophets were here and they prophesied. And what happened? In, in verse 2 of chapter 5, it says, Then rose up Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Josadak, and began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. And with them were the prophets of God helping them. I don't know what all that means. I don't know if they were pulling the tape measure or running the saw. But they were there and encouraging them. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to summarize a bit of the, the next and just tell it. But there were those of the land there, Tatnai, the governor, and they said, what's going on here? This, the, the people had responded to the message of Haggai, and they were building. And it created quite a stir. And so they ran down, and they said, what are y'all doing? Who's in charge here? Notice that. They said, we, in, in the letter they wrote back to, to Darius, they said, we asked who's in charge, so we could tell you, we could find the guilty people. And we asked them what's going on, and, and they said that Cyrus sent them down here and told them to do this. So we want you, Darius, to look and to see in the record if this is true. In the last verse of, of chapter 5, it says, Now therefore, if it seem good to the king, let there a search be made in the king's treasure house, which is at Babylon, whether it be so that a decree was made of Cyrus to build this house of God at Jerusalem, and let the king send the, his pleasure to us concerning this matter. They were concerned that there was a rebellion getting ready to happen. And I don't know that that was unreasonable. But Darius the king in chapter 6, he gave a decree and they found the roll in the palace in the province of the Medes at Akmetha. And there it was. That decree of Cyrus they found. And it's recorded there. And it says, and this is Darius's response to, to the governor there. Now therefore, Tatnai, governor beyond the river, Shethar Bosnai and your companions the Arphasachites that are beyond the river, be ye far from thence. Let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God for his place. Moreover, I make a decree that ye shall do to the elders of these Jews for the building of this house of God, that of the king's goods, even of the tribute beyond the river, forthwith expenses be given unto these men that they be not hindered. That which they have need of, both young bullocks and rams and lambs for burnt offerings of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, and oil, according to the appointment of the priests which are at Jerusalem, let it be given them day by day without fail. Not only did he say, let them alone, he said, you actually have to help them. And I think he had a little bit of an ulterior motive here. Most of us, like to do what's right, but we like to do things that help ourselves too. And I think we see that in verse 10 it says, that they may offer sacrifices of sweet odors unto the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. He had a vested interest and he goes on to tell them what to do, let it be done with speed and it says they did so speedily. In verse 14, and the elders of the Jews built it and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. And they built it and finished it according to the commandment of God of Israel, according to the commandment of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished in the third day of the month Adar, which is the sixth year of Darius the king. And that was 516. The 520 is when it started. Four years later, they finished the temple. And let's read about the dedication. This is chapter 6, verse 17, verse 16. And the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the children of the captivity kept the dedication of this house of God with joy. 
and offered at the dedication of this house of God an hundred bullocks, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs, and for a sin offering for all Israel, twelve he goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their courses for the service of God, which is at Jerusalem, as it is written in the, law, in the book of Moses. And the children of the captivity kept the Passover on the fourteenth day of the first month. For the priests and Levites were purified together. All of them were pure and killed the Passover for all the children of the captivity and for their brethren the priests and for themselves. And the children of Israel, which were come again out of captivity, and all such as had separated themselves unto them from the filthiness of the heathen of the land to seek the Lord God of Israel, did eat and kept the feasts of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria unto them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Celebration. A blessed time. But I would like us to, to pull out and focus just a bit on verse 21. Who celebrated the Passover? Who observed the Passover? All such as had separated themselves unto them from the filthiness of the heathen of the land to seek the Lord God of Israel. It wasn't just anybody that was excited about it. It wasn't just those who were watching on, those who helped build. It was those that had made a choice to do something about their faith. That took the call of God seriously. That observed the law. Turning to God and separation from the filthiness of the land were requirements. I'd like you to be thinking about your life today. What is it that you need to separate yourself from? How is it that you turn to God? There's a time span between chapter 6 and chapter 7 of Ezra that's approximately 60 years from this 516 up to 457. And in that interim, there's the book of Esther. Just for some context there. And then in chapter 7, we have Ezra. So the early part of this book was, is documenting what happened before Ezra's time. And now this is Ezra himself. And what happened to him? So this Passover, this separation that was, was talked about, this, this time, it was a good many years elapsed, and we don't really know what all was happening. We don't have a day-to-day -day account. And 60 years doesn't seem like a long time when you're looking at, you know, 2,700 years ago. But how much has changed in 60 years of your lifetime if you're over 60? In chapter 7, we, we are introduced to Ezra, and I'd just like to, to read a few verses down through, looking at, at who he was. Uh, in verses 5 and 6, giving his genealogy, it says, The son of Aaron of the chief priest. So he was a priest of the line, direct line of Aaron. In verse 5, uh, let's see, verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylon. He was a ready scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. So there, a ready scribe, a diligent man that applied himself to the study of the law. And he came to the king with a request. We don't see totally what that was, but it says, The king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. And then in verse 9, again we have the phrase, According to the good hand of his God upon him, 
Verse 10, for Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. He was, he was on fire. He was committed to the work, to the cause of God. And because of that, he turned to God, God turned to him, and we have recorded several times, the hand of God was upon him. God blessed him. And if we go down to verse 25, we see here that he also was appointed, as I take it, a bit of a governor. And thou, Ezra, after the wisdom of thy God that is in thine hand, the king is saying this, set magistrates and judges which may judge all the people that are beyond the river, such as know the laws of thy God, and teach ye them that do not know them. So he had was given responsibility as he returned. And so he was returning to Jerusalem under the blessing of the Persian king Artaxerxes. And he was also instructed to, to gather all the freewill offerings of the people there around Babylon. Whoever would give money, whoever would give for the temple at Jerusalem. Again, kind of strange, perhaps, we would think, for a pagan king to say, tax the people, get what you can get, and take it. But the good hand of his God was upon him. And in verses 27 and 28, this is Ezra's response to the letter that Xerxes had given to him to take, kind of a, a seal or a license. It says, Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, which hath put such a thing as this in the king's heart, to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. And hath extended mercy unto me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. And I was strengthened as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me and I gathered together out of Israel chief men to go up with me. It's just a beautiful picture. I'm not going to go and read the whole list of the men that went along with Ezra. He gathered them all together, and we're going to break in in chapter 8, verse 21. It says, And I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might afflict ourselves before our God, to seek of him a right way for us, and for our little ones, and for all our substance. For I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way, because we had spoken unto the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him. But his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. So we fasted and besought our God for this. And he was entreated of us. Was that a selfish prayer? You know, I'm, I'm challenged by the faith of these men we read about, and sometimes it seems like they kind of push God to the edge. They say, God, we said you're faithful, now you better come through or you're going to look bad. Moses kind of did that. He said, God, don't destroy your people because they know, you're, the, the nations know they're your people, and if you're to destroy them, they're going to say you just weren't able. But Ezra knew he was blessed of God. He knew how God worked. He had heard the message, probably, of Haggai. And if not, the promises that we read in the Psalms and, and the, the working of, through Moses, through David, through God's people and prophets. The hand of our God is upon them, all them for good that seek him. But they didn't just claim it. They fasted. They, they sought God in a serious way. And he was entreated. May that encourage us in our faith. When we face difficulty, when we face an insurmountable seeming task or circumstance... Do we seek God? Because number one, that's the number one 
the foundation. It says those that seek Him, those that turn to Him, then He can bless. But continuing on, he, He weighs and counts out the silver and the gold and the vessels that were being entrusted to them to send back, and He put them in the hand of 12 men. They were responsible. They made account for all the money so it wouldn't disappear. It took them, I think, about five months to get back to Jerusalem from Babylon. And when they arrived, it says they were there a few days, and then they checked all this stuff into the temple, and they counted it all, and they wrote it down. Just an interesting thing that accounting and and accountability was important. They were carrying the Lord's money. And then we get to chapter 9. Now when these things were done, the princes came unto me, saying, The people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. How many of those were supposed to have been destroyed? I don't know the exact number of years, 500 years earlier? Wasn't that, wasn't those the peoples that God said, I want you to, to completely destroy? If I recall right, but here they were, some of them. Verse 2, for they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and the rulers hath been chief in this trespass. And when I heard this thing, I rent my garment in my mantle and plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard and sat down astonished. And there were assembled unto me every one that trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the transgression of those that had been carried away. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. This wasn't a little thing. And this was, this was Ezra. He was a scribe. He was a student of the law. He knew. I think many of these people knew. But I think it was maybe he had more of a, of a tender heart at this and he is responsible he was sent here the king gave him the instruction to teach the people there the laws of the God of this temple verse 5 and at the evening sacrifice I arose from my heaviness and having rent my garments and my mantle I fell upon my knees and spread up my hands unto the Lord my God and I said oh my God I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God, for our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespass is grown up unto the heavens. Since the days of our fathers have we been in great trespass unto this day. For our iniquities, for our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword and to captivity, and to a spoil, and to confusion of face as it is this day. And now for a little space, grace hath been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a nail in his holy place that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. For we were bondmen, yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage, but hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us a reviving to set up the house of our God and to repair the desolations thereof and to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken thy commandments, which thou hast commanded by thy servants the prophets, saying, The land unto which ye go and to possess it is an unclean land with the filthiness of the people of the lands, with their abominations, which have filled it from one end unto another with their uncleanness. Now therefore give not your daughters unto their sons, neither take their daughters unto your sons, nor seek their peace nor their wealth forever. 
that ye may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great trespass, seeing that thou, our God, hast punished us less than our iniquities deserve and hast given us such deliverance as this, should we again break thy commandments and join in affinity with the people of these abominations? Wouldest not thou be angry till thou hast consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor escaping? O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous, for we remain yet escaped as it is this day. Behold, we are before thee in our trespasses, for we cannot stand before thee because of this. The glory, the joyous occasion of the temple being rebuilt. And 60 years later, 55 years later, here's where they are. And it looks hopeless to Ezra because he knows, what did he tell the king? That God is for those that seek him and he will destroy those that are evil. So if he was banking on one half of the promise, didn't he have to also bank on the other half? I don't think I realize this beautiful prayer, how heart-wrenching it is, but how beautiful it is, was here in Ezra. Repentance, contrition. Not, was, Ezra, was Ezra married to a Canaanite? I sure don't think so. But his people, those he was responsible for, those that he cared about, And he sees where they are, and he recognizes that God could have, could have wiped them out when Jerusalem fell. There needed to be no captivity. There needed to be no remnant. God could have wiped the slate clean, but he didn't. And he said, God, you gave us a second chance, and now look what we've done again. And there's a beautiful little picture that I don't, I'm not quite sure that I... I didn't take the time to flesh it out too much, but here in verse 8 it says... And to give us a nail in his holy place. God gave us a little connection back. I, I, I saw different, different pictures in my mind and I don't know what all it meant. But God gave us a place to hang our hat again. If, if, as it were. Back in the temple. We didn't deserve it. And now look what we've done. But let's continue into chapter 10. Now when Ezra prayed, had prayed and had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men, women, and children, for the people wept very sore. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehel, one of the sons of Elam, answered and said unto Ezra, We have trespassed against our God, and have taken strange wives of the people of the land, Yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all, our, all the wives and such as were born of them according to the counsel of my Lord and of those that tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter belongeth unto thee, we also will be with thee. Be of good courage and do it. This man likely was an elder in the, in, the, in, the, in the nation there. But he came and said, there is hope. Those of us that have trespassed, those of us that have sinned, are willing to do something about it. Only then is there hope. But he also encourages him. He said, this is your responsibility. You were sent here to take care of this. Get up and do something about it. And we will help you. I just see a number of times an interaction between leadership and those in various stations. 
the commitment to each other. Do what you need to do. We'll help you. It's a beautiful picture. Then Ezra arose, verse 5, and made the chief priests, Levites, and all Israel to swear that they would do according to his word, this word, and they swear. Then Ezra arose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehoanan, the son of Eliashib. And when he came thither, he did eat no bread nor drink water, for he mourned because of the transgression of them that had been carried away. And they made proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem unto all the children of the captivity that they should gather themselves unto Jerusalem, and that whosoever should, would not come within three days, according to the counsel of the princes and the elders. So he said, how long do you think we should give them? Three days. If they didn't come within three days' time, all his substance should be forfeited and himself separated from the congregation of those that had been carried away. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered themselves together into Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month, on the twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the street of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and for the great rain. They didn't wait till it was a nice sunshiny day to have a picnic. And Ezra the priest stood up and said, Ye have transgressed and have taken strange wives to increase the trespass of Israel. Now therefore make confession unto the Lord God of your fathers and do his pleasure and separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the strange wives. Then all the congregation answered and said with a loud voice, As thou hast said, so must we do. But the people were many, are many, and it is a time of much rain, and we are not able to stand without. Neither is this a work for, of one day or two, for we are many that have transgressed. Now let our rulers of all the congregations stand, and let all them which have taken strange wives in our cities come at appointed times, and with them elders of every city, and judges thereof, until the fierce wrath of our God for this matter be turned from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jehaziah, the son of Tikvah, were employed about this matter. And Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, helped them. And the children of the captivity did so. And Ezra the priest, with certain chief of the fathers, after the house of their fathers, and all of them by their names, were separated, and sat down on the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter. And they made an end with all the men that had taken strange wives by the first day of the first month. And among the sons of the priests, okay, these are, these are the people that should have been examples. They were found that had taken strange wives, and it lists namely of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josedach. Remember, he was the one that was, was instrumental in building the temple. Jeshua, the son of Josedach. We read that name many times earlier. And his brethren, Maasiah and Eliezer and Jerob and Gedaliah, and they gave their, their hands or committed themselves that they would put away their wives, and being guilty, they offered a ram of the flock for their trespass. So they worked out a way to, to act. I don't think it was so much that this was, uh, I'm not sure the right, the right politi politically correct term to use today, but it was against these women per se. But it was, it was the background of what they brought with them. They worshipped pagan gods. They brought the abomination. It says that they were doing the abominations of these people. And the people were willing to deal with it. They recognized, they repented, and they acted. And that's pretty much, that's where it gives a, a list of others, of the people that, that were guilty, and, and a list of those that had to put away their strange wives and, and the children that were born by them. And that's the end of the book. What do we take from it? I think Chad said that Hebrews is pretty doctrinal. We've got to make it practical. 
And Ezra's pretty historical. How do we make it practical? What was the primary message or emphasis of Jesus? I saw that question posed recently, and, and the answer was given, and I, I, can, I, I think I agree. And that was, the, the answer given was the message of the kingdom. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. What verse did I read at the beginning? We receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. But if you read the gospel of Matthew, yes, the message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was do these things because this is how the kingdom of God needs to operate. And we are people of this kingdom. This kingdom of heaven. A kingdom that is not of this world. And I see here in Ezra's time. This, this remnant of the captivity. Is it not a type of the church? Of the kingdom of heaven on earth today? They were to be in the world, but not partaking of the nations around them. We are to be separate from the world, not conform to the world. And I believe it was similar as they were commanded there. God had commanded it to his people in the Old Testament. They were not to intermarry with the heathen nations because it would influence them with, with that heathen culture and religion. And it would cause them to violate the law. And the law was there for a reason. As I was meditating on this, I, I pulled out a book off my shelf, Doctrines of the Bible. And I turned to the section on nonconformity. And I read it. And I would encourage any of you that have somewhere between 10 minutes and an hour, if you have that book, to read that. And think about it in light of, of history. And think about it in light of where we are today. What is nonconformity and why? It happened at the dedication of the temple, and it happened 60 years later in this passage was the call for those that wanted to be right with God to separate themselves, to act on it, to purify their hearts. And we hear this taught and preached, and I'm not going to the New Testament to look at all the verses. I don't have time to go there. And we've heard much of it before. But I'd like us to think about how are we to be separate? What are the, quote, strange wives that we could be married to. Did of you have any, anything that you would you think of right off? Because this, I think, is really where the rubber meets the road in our Christian experience. We can have a good understanding of the gospel. We can know we want to be saved. What does it look like to be God's people, God's separate people? I heard a, I was encouraged to listen to a, a sermon recently, which I did. And it, it caught, led me down a, a, a thought process. And one was, was that someone put forth the idea that so much of the problem in our, in our evangelical Christian surrounding is that we tell people how to be saved and get them saved before they understand why they need to be saved. Which means that we don't teach 
repentance. And I guess that kind of comes in here because if we're going to repent, what are we repenting from and what are we going to do about it? Do we need to be saved? Do we need God's redemption? What from and what to? And, and how is it going forward? I'll just mention a number of areas that we have the to consider, and I believe in, in areas that we can, as I, as I say in quotes, have marry strange wives of, of the world or be influenced by the world to the abominations. But just think about these areas. Number one, what we worship or what we give our ultimate allegiance to. Number two, what we love. What we pursue and we, we dream about. Maybe it's not our ultimate allegiance, but what, what do we think a lot about? Number three, what we value. What we invest our time and money in. What we really think is important. What we wear. Is it serviceable and practical? Or is it following the fads and fashions to draw attention to ourselves or to make us appear a certain way? What we drive, again, to get us there or style, fashion, and pleasure. What we do for recreation, amusement and comedy. Or, I think most of us consider recreation going to a park or going for a walk in the woods. Not that we have to do it all out there. But if I recall right, there was a message here recently that said that one of the ways God speaks to us is through nature. And that can be in recreation. What we read or watch. Is it for edification and blessing or entertainment and frivolous gratification? We live in the world, but how much do we go to the world for these things? To decide what to wear, to decide what to read, what to watch, what to drive, what to value. And I would love for you to talk about these things, to think about these things, and, and discuss it because I'd love to open it up here for an hour and talk about it because I think we need to talk about it. But we don't have to do it all as a group, but you can do it with each other. There were men here that recognized that they were in error. And there were others that probably didn't even think about it. They just saw somebody else do it. Seemed fine. And in class this morning it was mentioned that often apostasy doesn't happen by going off a cliff. It's the gradual turn. And how do you stop somebody? How do you get a hold of somebody's attention that's just 10 or 15 degrees off of course? Because they could say, no, I'm still going that way. I can see that road up ahead. I had to think of that. So in these areas, what are the little ways that we may be veering, but, but how do we call our attention back and say, what, what is the motive of this? What is the agenda of what I'm reading, watching, wearing, driving? What, what's the purpose? Am I trying to glorify God? No, it's not about laws. It's not about a, a, a code, a creed that my faith is put in. But it's about having a heart that is pure before God. That wants to worship and honor Him. So that I can partake of His Passover. Let's kneel for prayer.
Oh, Father, thank you for being our Father. And we want to hallow your name. We want to lift you up. We thank you for the scripture and for the record of you working with your people, the faith of men of the past that have responded to you, have turned toward you, and how you were entreated of them, and how you've come through and, and blessed, and the promises that you made to your people or that you fulfilled, and those that we are still looking forward to. We thank you for Christ, the living way, that has given us each the opportunity to experience your salvation and your grace. And that while we don't live under the old law and, and the, the stipulations there in that setting, we live in the law of the spirit of life in Christ. And Father, I pray that that spirit would be alive in each heart here. That we would turn toward you and that you would, according to your promise, turn toward us. And then we can know you, that we can abide in you. And then we can be aware of the lure of the world. And we can guard our hearts from committing the abominations that would cause us to be in judgment. But would cause us also to be, to cause you grief. So Father, I thank you for the spirit of life. I thank you for the truth for the brotherhood that we can encourage each other and, and edify one another and warn each other. And as we've met to, to worship and to fellowship, Father, I just pray that you would pour out a blessing to each one here. And that as we go from this place, we would have the joy of Christ as we surrender to you and do what is necessary to walk in purity before you. These things we ask in Christ's name. Let's have a